Right, so have you ever been to a murder mystery dinner theater? If you haven't been, I highly recommend it. They are a lot of fun. Uh, there's one that's currently happening at the Mount Hope whatever thing, thank you, in uh, Mannheim, just on the turnpike north of Mannheim. Uh, Ray and I have been to theirs twice over the years. Um, and then last week when we were in Florida with the marching band with Andrew and Catherine, uh, we went to a different one. Obviously it wasn't the one in Mannheim. Um, we went to a different one. And what's consistent about all of them is that the actors show that a murder's happened. There's like a little performance, shows that a murder happens. And then um, there are multiple suspects. They all have a motive, they all have an opportunity. You interact in some way with them, whether you're interrogating them as they move around or whether the entire audience is asking uh, a question per table, however it works. Um, and then it gets to the big reveal. And they always ask for a show of hands or who thinks what or, or ask a couple of people to share what, what do you think happened and, and things like that before the actors dramatically tell you the solution that never quite goes the direction that people thought it would. And so the one we were at last week in Florida, there were four suspects, uh, five if you count suicide, which is what some of our students thought and really made some sense, it, their reasoning made some good sense. But in this case, it was, it was an allergic reaction to bee pollen is what killed her. Um, but all four of these suspects had means, motive, and opportunity. And as the reveal was happening, they shared how it couldn't be the husband and it couldn't be the business manager. And then went to the newly discovered daughter and shared why it wasn't her, leading to believe that it was the fourth and final suspect, the sister. They dramatically removed her gardening gloves to reveal that she was clearly not the murderer. And it turned out that the daughter reached across the sister's body and the sister sneezed because of the bee pollen on the hand of the daughter. The daughter was actually the murderer. So the actors led you down a path that turned out to be reversed at the last minute to bring as much shock as possible. And so I've ruined that one for you. I'm not gonna tell you where it is, but if you're in Orlando, don't go to that one. You know. Um, <laughs> So what does a murder mystery in Florida, why does it keep scrolling to the bottom of my thing? Um, what does a murder mystery in Florida have to do with Esther chapter six? But Esther six is where we will see a reversal of epic proportions. Maybe you saw it coming, maybe you've read Esther before and you knew that this was gonna happen, but Haman had no idea. And so as our sixth chapter of Esther unfolds, we remember the Jews in Susa, they're terrified, they're far from the temple, they had no idea how close God was. But God was at work in, the, in this chapter, and it is abundantly clear as we read. So the last time we were together, the end of, of Esther chapter 5, what was, what was going on? What had happened? Right, Haman was building gallows for Mordecai because he was still angry with him. And, and he went, had, had gone home 
and he had talked to his wife and talked to his friends and had these plans made to kill Mordecai in the most public, humiliating way possible. And then we get to chapter 6. And so Esther 6, 1 through 3. So the king couldn't sleep. Now, have you ever been there, tired but not able to fall asleep, right? Uh, could not sleep, when it says uh, there at the beginning of verse 1, could not sleep, literally it's the sleep of the king fled. Now we've talked about how every word in the book of Esther is there for a purpose. And now we see that there's a purpose in knowing that the king could not sleep. It was important enough that there's so many other things that are left out that we see the king could not sleep. But why couldn't he sleep? Yeah. That's exactly right. We don't know the earthly reason why he wasn't sleeping. Uh, in fact, if you, it, and I, I could not find an English version, but there are um, some way old Greek versions or Hebrew versions. I can't remember which one it was. There's an old, old version that says the Lord took the sleep from the king. And so there is, um, there is this underlying everybody knows why the king couldn't sleep was because God made it happen. It could have been finances. It could have been that there were problems with Greece or who knows what. Maybe he ate too much. Maybe he drank too much. Maybe he was still wondering, well, what is it that Esther wants that was important enough to have two feasts that she couldn't just ask me? You know, some or all of these worries may have played a part in the king's wakefulness, but behind them was the sovereign hand of the living God. And there is no doubt that God was behind the king's sleeplessness. So we think about insomnia as an insignificant detail, but here God made sure that we knew that the king couldn't sleep. So Ray was talking to Abby this week about 2 Samuel. He, when he was preaching, we've tried to convince her that she's allowed to stay in the service instead of go to Fusion, but she loves Fusion so much that she goes um, twice every week, but uh, that she could stay in the service and listen to him. But he was talking um, about the Bible, and they were talking about Second Samuel in particular, and it was an odd passage. If you were there on Sunday, you heard him, right? But 
the statement that was made was there wasn't a lot of paper back then. God didn't waste his words. If it's in the Bible, God had a reason. And that's what Ray told Abby. And this is another one of those things. This was not ordinary insomnia. It wasn't just in there as a piece of fluff. God included it because God was in it. And it is a major turning point in this story. It may seem like a small thing, but God uses small things. So we see what's happening to the king. What do you think was happening to Mordecai at this time? Yeah, he would have been at home asleep, right? His fast was over, probably still praying and and uh, as any father would, worried over Esther and what was happening and what her plan was. But he was asleep in his bed, having no idea that anything was happening at the palace, let alone the danger that he was in if Haman had his way. But the king can't sleep, and so what does he do? He calls for the book of, of the records of the memorable deeds to be read. This was the story of his reign as king. This was a common practice to have this type of a book. Um, but the king could have called for absolutely anything. I mean, he's the king, right? He could have asked for musicians to come. He could have asked for food or wine, concubines, Esther, and he chose to have a book read to him. So we still read with our kids most nights, or at least when all of us are at home. So it's become a little less as our children have become more involved in various activities. But we used to read to give them some time to wind down before they went to bed. Uh, now it's more just to have dedicated family time together, but uh, it's still a nice part of the bedtime routine. And, even though only one person in the house goes to bed after we finish, we still do reading of bedtime stories, and we still call it bedtime stories. Um, but we used it as a way to wind down, and so the king, he chose this book to be read to him, um, and it would have covered all the time he had been king. Now, likely he did not start at the beginning, or it would have been a very long night. He's in his 12th year as king, and so 12 years worth of stuff, right? Um, I personally like to think that he was thinking of Esther and maybe even asked to have the reading start with her being crowned queen, because um, that was in Esther 2, if you remember. But many say he just wanted a big, boring book to be read to him and that his servants would have chosen where to start. Um, Either way, it doesn't change the fact that God providentially chose that spot to be read to the king. Chose for him to still be awake. If he chose to read about Esther, chose for him to still be awake to hear about what Mordecai did. If, if the servant picked it, God pointed the servant to that page to be read. And so that was the, the, that particular passage that was read was about Big Thin and Teresh. They're familiar, right? You remember who they are because there weren't any other names in the book of Esther, right? So we think about um, 
we want to take a look back at at who they are but as we think as we look back at this passage in in our book of the record of Esther uh, we want to think about historically and politically this event seems minor right the king's disturbed state of mind however was eased when he heard of Mordecai's actions and so the chances of this particular passage being picked out of the 12 years of the king's reign pretty slim but when you factor God into that equation all those percentages changed and there was a 100% certainty that Ahasuerus would hear this message on this night at this time only God so who has Esther 2 21 through 23 And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther, and Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. When the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows, and it was reported in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. So what happened with Big Thin and Teresh? They wanted to kill the king. But who heard the plan? Mordecai heard the plan, and what did he do when he heard it? He made sure that the king found out, and then the king was saved. And that was all. No reward, no recognition, just a good deed done, a life saved, and everyone moving on. So we think about this, and we want to think about how long ago this happened, that when in our observation questions. And so first we need to look at where we are now in the narrative. So um, back to Esther 3, verse 7. And so that's the, the moment there in Esther 3.7 is the moment when, the, when Haman is casting lots. But we just, so we know this happens just a few days later because he then writes the decree and then the Jews find out about it and then Mordecai tells Esther she has to do something and Esther's in the process of doing something. So we're just days away from this, but it's in the, the first month of the 12th year of King Ahasuerus. That's where we're sitting as we're reading in our narrative. But when was it that Mordecai went to save the king? And so this one's a little more vague because if you look at Esther 2.21, it just tells us in those days. And so we have to look a little bit farther. And so Esther 2.16. So Esther was made queen in the seventh year, the tenth month of the seventh year of the king's reign. Then there was a feast, a second gathering of virgins, and then Mordecai hearing the gossip at the gate. So it's, we don't know exactly when, but we know not a whole lot of time has passed 
from um, Esther being named queen in the 10th month of the seventh year to the 12th year of Ahasuerus' reign, the first month of the 12th year. So we're just going to say around four years has passed, plus or minus, about four years, right? Four years of no one thinking about this event, no recognition, no reward, four years for it to be completely forgotten, except that it was written down in the book of memorable deeds. So had Mordecai been honored four years before, the events of, of today in our, in our narrative couldn't have occurred. But Persian kings prided themselves in rewarding well those who helped them in some significant way. And Ahasuerus realized that he had failed to honor Mordecai, and so he wanted to repair that, immediately wanted to repair that. Because rewards and punishments were basic to the Persian system of maintaining loyalty. And this was extremely unusual for an act like this, for this meritorious service to go unrewarded. So why was Mordecai's deed written down but not, not rewarded? Um, and this is a delay of God, a delay, not a denial. Sometimes we get impatient and we wondered why other people, the wicked, are prospering while the righteous are suffering, but God is never in a hurry. So have you ever been in church and you've heard a sermon that you know was just for you and you like squunched down in the chair just a little bit more? Right? Because you're like, oh, everybody's looking at me because this is all, you know. We've all experienced times when we know that, that God has deliberately caused us to read something, to hear a strategically timed message, to listen to a song on the radio, or an encouraging word from a friend at just the right time. And in such times, you wonder if your face flushes and you're wondering whether people around you know that God pegged you think that people must be staring at you because this message, whatever form it took, was directly for you. But what's most astounding today is not that God would take a time of reading to a Persian king, but that he would time the reading of people like you and me, people simply trying to live a life of faith, and yet we are on his radar screen. What does Hebrews 6.10 say? That is a good one. Yeah. yeah. So now King Ahasuerus, he hears about Mordecai, and he's no longer trying to sleep. He's been stirred to action. He had what I call a light bulb moment. He realized just how important this event truly was, and he would not rest until something was done about it. So let's see what he did in Esther 6, verses 4 and 5.
So if we take just a minute to reference what that court was when it, it says who is, who is in the court, it would have still been, um, yeah, so, so everybody that I read said that it was still, it, it may have been the wee hours of the morning, but it would not, the, the king wouldn't have necessarily had anybody out there in the court. The, the court is the closest place you can get without being in the like throne room. That's the closest place you can get without being invited. And so clearly King Ahasuerosh was not the only one awake that night because here's Haman also awake. Um, he did not wait until morning, but he hopped right to it. He shook the, Haman shook the royal builders out of their slumber and put them to work. And the um, phrase, and I think it was Warren Wiersbe that said it, says sawing logs took on a whole different meaning that night. <laughs> so I live out on a large, in, in, uh, where large farm equipment runs around, where like, it was clear that in 1980, somebody sold their farm. And there's this cluster of houses and then Here's a farm, and 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 here's Joyce's farm, right? All around us are these farms. So there's lots and lots of farm equipment that runs around, and it can get loud, even from down at the end of the street. With doors and windows closed, you can sometimes still hear, depending on which piece of machinery it is. And so, but I have doors and windows that I can close and get most of that blocked out. But think about the noise if there were saws and axes and hammers building a large gallows that he wanted public in the center of town. So here this building stuff is going on overnight. Wouldn't it be interesting? This is totally just like the Book of Esther according to Morgan translation, right? Wouldn't it be interesting if the king's inability to sleep was because of that extra noise? I mean, but you think about that in the way this comes about. But Haman had a plan and he wanted to make it happen as fast as he could. And he was pursuing it with haste and with eagerness. And part of that plan was the construction of the gallows. And the other part of that plan was a, an early audience with the king to get rid of Mordecai as soon as possible. From Haman's point of view, the earlier the hanging, the better, because Mordecai's body would be on exhibition all day long. And this would delight Haman and put even more fear into the hearts of the Jews in the city. And so when we think about, here the king asks, who is in the court? This is why we know there wouldn't have been many people there. So it would have been very late or very early in the morning. Um, but what we have seen from King Ahasuerus, he is completely lost without his advisors, right? He needs people to tell him what to do. He needed counsel and so, here he asks, who's out there? So suppose Haman had arrived just an hour later. 
Suppose he had just rested comfortably at home knowing that his gallows were being built, knowing that the king wouldn't be awake yet. The king would have consulted with other advisors. Haman would have been left out completely of the celebration for Mordecai. But God wanted Haman to spend the day honoring Mordecai and not gloating over Mordecai's corpse on the gallows. When you review these evidences of the providence of God, you can't help but want to praise him and thank him for the great God that he is, for all those details. So let's see what happens when Haman is called in. Esther 6, 6 through 10. So Haman is called in. What do you think is going through his head at this moment? But before, but before he knows what's happening, what's happening in his brain when he is set, when they, his, the servants come and say, Haman, the king wants you, come in. Bigger and bigger and bigger head, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. He's, he had just left his home where Zeresh, his wife, and his friends were all building him up. And he had just left a feast before that, left a feast where he was alone with the king and the queen and had been invited to it. He didn't just happen on it. His gallows were under construction to kill his arch nemesis and he was in the palace to take the next step in making this happen. And here he is called in to the presence of the king in the middle of the night. Definitely proud. And his response in verse 7 made that clear. He thought he was the only person the king would ever desire to honor. Pride, right? Let's read James 4, 6. And 1 Peter 5, 5. Likewise, you who are younger be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. God hates pride. 
pride fights for supremacy with God himself. It is in complete and direct opposition to God. It attempts to elevate the sinner above God. And so here's Haman's, Haman's thoughts. He's thinking, the king needs me. I am great. I am important. He was confident that he deserved it all. When we think about pride for ourselves, we cannot forget that only God is indispensable. Only God is irreplaceable. We cannot assume that God owes us or that we can earn anything, let alone honor from God. What we have to keep asking God is, why are you so good to me when I am often so bad? That's great. <laughs> yeah, we have to remember that while we may not be quite as apparent as Haman, we all have our moments of pride and we all have to remember that we have to focus on God and on what he has done because anything that he has done is so much greater than anything we could do without him. But back to Haman. He was confident that King Ahasuerus was seeking to honor him, the man who had just been invited to dine privately with the king and queen, the man who people of the kingdom were supposed to bow down to, the man that was being sought out in the wee hours of the night or morning, not just into the throne room, but quite possibly and quite likely into the king's bedchamber. Haman didn't have a chance to ask the king about Mordecai because the king asked his question. And clearly, like Marta said, Haman had given some thought to this at some point in time or many times because he had an elaborate plan. But think about this plan, right? This is the first time that we have seen a well-thought-out plan from one of his advisors. Now, thinking it was for himself, Haman's plan left nothing, else, nothing out. And so what was it that Haman suggested to be done for the man the king wanted to honor? Royal robes, the horse, the crown. The crown was placed on the head of the horse, not the man, by the way, if you read that. Um, and there are archaeologists have discovered like drawings of horses that appear to be wearing crowns. So there was, it, it was this like picture of the horse wearing a crown, kind of made me laugh. And to be led by the king's most noble officials. And what was he to be, to be proclaiming, the noble official to be proclaiming? There in verse, what is that, nine? Yeah, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. So look at verses 7 through 9. How many times are the word, is the word royal used? Three. 
Yeah, my version counted too. How many times king? Yeah, I'm hearing five and six. Seeing, yeah, so a lot, right? Haman, believing the king was referring to him, realized he couldn't ask for a promotion because he had already achieved the highest promotion possible. And therefore, Haman's request was that he be treated like the king himself. Nothing about Haman's list was random. And I know we're going long, but trust, trust me, this is really good stuff. And I cut a lot out. Um, read Genesis 41, 42 through 45. And this is Joseph after he interprets the Pharaoh's dream. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set thee over all of the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand, and clothed him in garments of fine linen, and put a gold chain about his neck. And he made him ride in his second chariot. And they called out before him, Bow the knee, thus So here Joseph is being honored by Pharaoh. And this is happening before the time of Esther, but still we think about these things and, and he, is, he is honoring Joseph. He puts him into clothing of fine linen, jewelry, has him ride in his second chariot, has it proclaimed in front of him. I can't remember the exact words, but what deed he had done right? To wear a robe that the king had worn and to ride a horse that the king had ridden was the highest mark of honor that could be shown to a subject. It was a special favor in the ancient Near East. If you remember back when we were looking at 1 Samuel on Sunday mornings, 1 Samuel 18, Jonathan takes off his robe and gives it to David following their covenant together. And in 1 Kings 1.33, riding the king's horse was an indication of royalty. And so as we enter the season of Lent and we're preparing for Easter, we think about the Easter story, right? First, Jesus entered into Jerusalem on a colt that had never been ridden for the triumphal entry. And the soldiers did not want to tear his inner robe because it would have been a special garment. And they cast lots for his clothes to keep his clothes. To wear the robe is a very serious request tantamount to asking for the kingship. It's considered a part of his body, a part of his being. And the Persian belief was that the royal robe was actually thought to possess a magical power in some way that actually conferred that power onto the person who wore it. 
Haman had ascended as high as he could on his own, and he wanted to reach the kingship using this magic. Uh, Landon Dowden in the Christ-Centered Expository Commentary says, Haman's craving for honor and significance was such a drive and passion in his life that everything else would immediately be set aside for it, even killing an enemy. Right? He went in with the plan to kill Mordecai, and then given the chance, he's like, oh, let's think more about me, Right? There is only one pursuit worthy of such passion and priority. Without the grace of God, we are all Haman seeking only what cannot satisfy and what is to our detriment. We need to beg God to save us from ourselves. We need to seek him to lead us to true and full repentance from sin, especially that those are repeated and are consistent in our lives. We need to confess it to someone seek out accountability. We have grow groups. If you're interested in grow groups, talk to Elizabeth. That is a great opportunity for accountability in any area that is a, um, an important aspect of your discipleship journey. But Haman still has not seen the true purpose in the king's question, right? He's, he's still kind of, uh, thinking of himself, and then he gets, and, and so we're going to start reading at 10 again. I know we already read 10, but we're going to read 10 and 11, verses 10 and 11 of Esther 6. Then the king said to Haman, hurry, take the road from the horse, as you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king, king's gate. Leave out nothing that he has mentioned. So Haman took the road from the horse, and he dressed Mordecai, and led him to the square of the city, proclaiming What do you think Haman's thinking now? Right, all he's is just like, no! I don't think he said that very loud. Oh, no, he... <laughs> he was, he, and he would have been torn between obedience to the king and honoring his mortal enemy. There would have been this great debate in his, in his heart about what to do. Can you imagine laying out so many specific details to express something you desired so passionately, only to then be commanded not just to let the person you dislike the most on the entire planet fully experience what you have longed for, but to be the one to lead them through it, right? He couldn't skip anything. But let's take a close look. We've, we've looked at the, at, at, like the overview. So just thinking about that, not only, he just had that gallows built, so he probably would have had to march him around that gallows. That's right. That gallows would have been in the middle of the city, and there's no way that he can march Mordecai he knows immediately, I can't march him around these gallows and then hang him on it later. I've lost my chance, right? He totally knows the whole thing is gone. But if we dig deep into these verses or, or take a really close look, what was it in verse 10 that 
what did King Ahasuerus call Mordecai? The Jew. The Jew. You get the impression that the king had no idea that he had permitted Haman to issue an edict to destroy the Jews. And if you look back, um, we'll see that. But the fact that Ahasuerus sought to honor a man he clearly knew was a Jew must have even bigger bulging of Haman's eyes. So at the king... Why would he say what? Yeah, so to the king, this was, this was due four years ago. This should have been done four-ish years ago, and he didn't do it. Right, and so it's, it's long overdue, and now I have a plan, let's do it. That's, that's what he's thinking, and so he just, let's get this done. And by the time you rounded up Mordecai and got the horse and got the robes and it would have been daylight. I mean, there would have been some level of that, but it was, it was don't let, don't let another minute pass before we start this process. And you want to have something nice going on before you have this hanging going on. Right, yeah, he would have known there was something going on because it would have been noisy, right? And so we see that, um, that the king, but the king sees this as Mordecai the Jew. He says Mordecai the Jew. And so um, if we look back at Esther 3, 8 through 10, uh, did I give that one to somebody? I may not have, and that's okay. It says, Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws, so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may put it into the king's treasuries. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadetha, the enemy of the Jews. Haman never said it was the Jews that he wanted to kill. So they, the, the Persian Empire and the Babylonians before them, they would just absorb whomever it was. So any group that they conquered at any point in time was was there so uh the medes would be there the you know the whole the babylon would be there any anybody they had conquered would be would still be in existence it wasn't until the greeks started their conquests that they actually made the uh people kind of take on and speak the greek language and and do the greek thing and live the greek culture um, so it wasn't until after the Persians that that happened. And so we don't know if King Ahasuerus actually knew what Haman's thing actually said. We do know that he didn't hear it from Haman. He may have read the edict, maybe not. 
but he has not connected the two events together. And the king had no idea of the deep animosity between Haman and Mordecai. But the people knew, right? The people knew because they had seen Mordecai not bowing down and they had seen Haman responding. So it would have been an extremely humiliating experience for Haman. And to top it off, the instruction that drowned Haman in Gaul was the reminder that he himself had suggested and recommended it. As the events of the day unfolded, he'd never once be allowed to forget that every detail was his idea. And so close your eyes for a minute. We've thought a lot about Haman in this lesson, and so let's think on Mordecai. What do you think it was like for him when Haman approached the king's gate, seeking Mordecai with horses in one of the king's robes? Right? Just picture it. Picture it in your mind. Yeah. I am sure that he was shocked. He would have been amazed. He would have been like, what? You know. Right, hesitant that it might have been a, might have been a trick. Uh, my um, my statement on here was he was like looking for the the camera because it was like he was on an episode of Persian cam- Candid Camera, right? Like what what is going on? It was definitely surreal and not just for Haman, and not just for Mordecai, but for anyone who knew of their history with each other. But Esther 6.11 is just as significant for what it doesn't say as what it does say. Because just like those words on that night the king could not sleep were not wasted, God didn't waste words by telling us how, how Mordecai responded. We don't know what Haman had to do to convince Mordecai that he was serious. We don't know if anyone laughed openly or just hid their faces to keep from turning Haman against them. From the scene where he put on sackcloth and wailed, we've come to know Mordecai as a man unashamed to show his feelings. Yet here we see and hear nothing of his reaction. What we do know is where they went after the ride was complete. And so let's read Esther 6, 12 through 13. So what did Mordecai do? Where did he go? Back to the gate. gate. Business as usual. (laughs) Yeah, there would have been a a level of humility. He carried on as if nothing had had been different about that morning. Yeah, he absolutely could have gone to try to talk to the king, could have done anything. And he chose to just go back to the gate, back to work, back to what he was supposed to do. And what did Haman do? And it says, it says that he, um, he hurried, Haman hurried to his house. 
everything for Haman is like, it's like on fast forward, right? Right. When he covered his head, he was symbolizing grief. And so Haman is publicly showing his distress. So what a contrast between Haman's gathering at the, in, in chapter 5, verses 10 through 12, versus chapter 6, verse 13. Before, Haman had boasted of his greatness, and now he had to confess how he had been humiliated. And what, in verse 13, what are his friends now called? Wise men. Wise men. They were only wise after Haman started to fall. Because earlier they had advised him to make the gallows for Mordecai, right? There is a definite, deliberate irony in that term being used. Because now they are telling him what is to come. It is a foreshadowing of things to come. They don't say that he might not stand. They tell him he cannot stand. They now realize that Mordecai had with him the God of the Jews and that Haman would not survive his attack of Mordecai. These Persian wise men realized the power of God and, and the power of the God of Israel and the importance of Israel's election. They see this as an omen of things to come, that, um, that if Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, it's a better translation is sense. That it's not just a, well, it could happen. It, it, the better translation is, is it, it is happening. It, it has happened. Um, when we seek to be honored rather than being honorable or rather than giving honor to the Lord, then we should not be surprised when God grants us humility rather than honor. See, I told you if you if you just stuck with me, we'd get to the really good stuff, right? And so now you can you can go and quickly do your small group questions.